right, morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings 10. Good to see all of you. Father, we look forward to that day when we will celebrate with you and your kingdom. What a beautiful reality that we have um, been reminded of Christ's sacrifice throughout our earthly Christian lives through the, this ordinance, um, communion, as we hold the bread and are reminded of Christ's body and the juice and reminded of his blood that was shed that cleanses us, and to think that that looks forward to or should remind us of our eternity with you, being in the kingdom and celebrating it with you then. And so in this morning's sermon, Lord, as we talk about that future kingdom that awaits us and how it was prefigured through Solomon's reign, I ask that you would help me to uh, bring forth those truths that do look forward to your son. We do want to have an anticipation about that time with him, and I think that this really is one of the clearest chapters in Scripture regarding what awaits us, um, the kingdom of heaven that was brought from heaven to earth, but then was not established physically, and we look forward to that time when it will be, Lord, and we get to celebrate and serve Christ. And so I pray that we could be built up in faith and anticipation of being part of that kingdom. I pray that you'd reveal the wonderful gems that are contained in these verses to your people. If there be any unbelievers here, then more than anything, grant them repentance and faith in Christ that they'd receive him as their Savior. We thank you for this time, Lord, and pray these things in his name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is A Greater Kingdom. A Greater Kingdom. We spent the last two weeks looking at how Jesus is greater than Solomon. That's what we've been talking about, and I believe we'll do that for uh, at least one more week. And in our first sermon, we talked about how Jesus built the greater house of God. Do you remember that? We talked about Solomon was um, called to build the earthly or physical house of God, but Jesus built the true and greater house of God, which is the spiritual house, or that we think more commonly of as the church. And then in our second sermon, we saw how Jesus is the greater son. So first, he built the greater house. Second, he is the greater son. We have been in 2 Samuel 7, looking at the Davidic covenant. Don't turn there. This morning, we'll be in 1 Kings 10, but we began these last two sermons in 2 Samuel 7 because the Davidic covenant gives that first clear association between Jesus and Solomon. And in the Davidic covenant, we see that Solomon is the son of David, but lowercase s. The true and greater son of David, uppercase s, would be Jesus. And we also have this language, 2 Samuel seven fourteen, where God said to David about Solomon, I will be to him, or I will be to Solomon a father, and he shall be to me a son. We know that's brought forward, placed in the New Testament. Hebrews 1.5, applied to Christ. So when God says that he has a son in Solomon, we know it looks past that. We see the true and greater son of God being Jesus himself. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the true and greater kingdom that Jesus presides over, that he brought from heaven to earth, and that we look forward to being part of physically in the future, even though we're simply part of it now spiritually. So we spent those last two weeks in 2 Samuel 7, and there's one verse from the Davidic covenant that I left off because I wanted to read it to you this morning. Again, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we know this must look past Solomon because he did not live or reign forever. Now, I want to ask you to think about something. This promise was made to David that he was always going to have an heir to sit on the throne. At what point in the Old Testament did it look as though this covenant was 
being unfulfilled or going unfulfilled. Or maybe another way to say it is, at what point in the Old Testament did it look as though there was no son of David to sit on the throne? Any guesses? When the Jews went into exile, right? The last king was Zedekiah. They found themselves in Babylon for 70 years. They came back from exile, and so you could say, well, what about at that time? Then did they have a king over them again when they were back in the land? No, they didn't. They only had governors. And so from that 600 years between Zedekiah, uh, much of the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and New Testaments and accompanied uh, in that six centuries, you had Zedekiah, and then there was no king on the throne of David for those six centuries. And so it could look as though this covenant that God had made, or you could say the promise that God has made, isn't coming true, or, or not to sound too crude, but almost looks as though God is a liar. And so if you were a Jew, what did you have to do at that time? You had to look forward in faith, believing that God was going to provide that son of David to sit on the throne. And when did that take place? When was that son provided? Well, we know that. We know through Mary, God became a person, or God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. And probably the the main announcement alerting us to this son of David arriving and sitting on the throne in his great, 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 great father's place is when uh, the messenger angel, Gabriel, comes to Mary and alerts her about what's taking place. So listen to this, Luke 1, verse 30. Gabriel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Looking back to the Davidic covenant, he'll be the long-awaited king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I didn't, I didn't put up uh, those verses in 2 Samuel seven sixteen on the screen, but if I did, you'd see there's considerable parallelism where many commentators even see the angel Gabriel using such strong, similar language to the Davidic covenant that it's pretty clear he's looking back on it and showing Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Now, when this long-awaited Messiah or king comes, what does he bring with him? Or maybe another way to say this, what does he have to bring with him if he is a king? He has to bring the same thing that every king must have if he is to be a king, because without it, he's not much of a king and that is a kingdom. And this brings us to lesson one. Jesus brought the kingdom of God with him. Jesus brought the kingdom of God with him, which is what we hear Gabriel alerting Mary to, that this son of hers will sit on this throne and reign over this kingdom. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is one of the more common questions I've received as a pastor. It's probably a question that you've had at least some point in your Christian life, and it's this. What did the gospel sound like before Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection? What did the gospel sound like before Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection? Because to us, the gospel, I mean, those are essential elements. There really, in our minds, is no gospel presentation without some reference to Jesus, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection. If I was to say, tell me the gospel, you would say something along the lines of, Jesus died for my sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, you would say he, uh, he hung on this cross, he was crucified in my place, he took the punishment my sins deserve. There are these elements that if they were absent, we would criticize someone who presented the gospel without mentioning those things. You're going to hear mention of Jesus, you're going to hear mention of his death, 
his burial, his resurrection, him taking the punishment for our sins. Without those things, we would say it's not even a gospel presentation. What's interesting is when Paul talked about the gospel, he said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't take this literally. Paul obviously knew uh, considerably more than just that, but it was so important to him to know Christ crucified that he said he determined not to know anything but that. And so it brings us, and I mean, even if you think about the disciples, what did the disciples preach? They clearly couldn't, could not preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, not just because Jesus hadn't died, been buried, and resurrected yet. I mean, that's, if I said, why didn't the disciples preach the gospel as we know it? Why didn't the disciples preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, you could say because he hadn't died, been buried, and resurrected. That would be true, but the other reason is because they didn't believe there would be any death, burial, or resurrection of Christ. What, can you think there is at least three recorded times in the Gospels that Jesus told the disciples that he was going to die? Can you think of any instance when they believed that? No, you can at least think of one instance when Peter found it so disbelieving that he pulls Jesus aside to do what with him? To rebuke him and to tell him that that's not going to happen. And so... <laughs> So not only could the disciples not preach death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they did not even believe there would be a death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which brings me back to the same question. What were they preaching before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Or another way to say it is, what was the gospel? What was the gospel before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Now, my suspicion is if you've read through the gospels even one time, you do know the answer. And it is the kingdom of God. That's what they preached. John, to preach the kingdom of God or to preach the kingdom of heaven, just to let you know, is to preach the same thing. John the Baptist comes on the scene. We might expect him to say, repent. But if he can't say, repent and put your faith in Christ who died and was buried and resurrected for your sins, what does he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, and he said the same thing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus sends out the twelve, and what does he tell them to preach? He tells them to preach the gospel, but specifically, he says, Matthew 10, 7, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus sends out the 72, Luke 10, 9, say to the people you meet, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So they preached the kingdom of God, but was it the same as preaching the gospel? It was, and I'll give you one clear instance of that. Just listen to this. Luke 9, 2. Jesus sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God, and then a few verses later, verse 6, they departed preaching the gospel. So that was the gospel. Preaching the kingdom of God was preaching the gospel. They were preaching the revelation that they had at the time, which was what? God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to earth. He brought the kingdom with him. They couldn't discuss the death, burial, and resurrection. They did not have that revelation at the time. It wasn't even until later in Christ's ministry with his disciples that he revealed it to them. And again, they did not even believe it up until the very end. 
When Jesus told them to say that the kingdom has come near or the kingdom is at hand, why was there that language? Basically, because it was near. It had been brought from heaven to earth. Jesus had brought it with him. It wasn't just Jesus coming from heaven to earth. It was him bringing the kingdom of God down to be near people. The primary message, well, you could say the primary message throughout all of human history is the gospel. That is the message that saves. That is what always has always needed to be preached. Now, in the Gospels, have you ever thought about the very abrupt change in the preaching? I mean, you're moving, you, you enter Acts, and then after reading through the Gospels and the repeated discussion of the preaching of the kingdom of God, there's like this sudden screeching halt. You reach Acts, and there's no more preaching about the kingdom of God. And you're like, what happened to the kingdom of God? Well, what is the message in Acts? And then what is the message in the epistles? Then they're not preaching the kingdom of God. Then they're preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. One of the reasons for that is Jesus was rejected in his first coming. That kingdom was, and it wasn't, there was no, sometimes we say things like this. We say things like, well, what if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, as though there's like some plan B or something. And so you say, well, what if Jesus hadn't been rejected in his first coming? I don't have an answer for that. It was always God's plan from the beginning of time that Christ would be rejected, and then he would, and he would take the punishment for our sins, and there would be this, you know, number of redeemed humanity. There would be this love gift between the Father and Son. So I don't, I don't know any alternative to that. But here's what happened. Christ brought, spiritually speaking, the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. He was rejected in his first coming. That kingdom was not physically established on the earth. Or another way to say it is this. Is Jesus currently sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, physically ruling and reigning over the earth? No, where does he sit at this time? Not in a throne in Jerusalem, but at the, the right hand of God. So he ascended to heaven, but he will return. At Jesus' second coming, he will establish the kingdom of God on the earth physically, and he will he will bodily, physically return. I mean, think of Acts 1. He ascends, and the disciples stand there for I don't know how long looking up, and then, and then, then they're told by an angel, he's going to return the same way that you saw him depart, which is to say you saw him depart physically, bodily, and he will return. We expect a physical, bodily return of Christ, and at that time, he will physically establish his, his kingdom on the earth and sit on physically, bodily, the throne of David. Listen to something Jesus said after, or after his first coming, but about his first coming. I've mentioned this a few times, this verse, in the last few sermons, and try to imagine you hadn't heard this verse before, though. Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, and now pause right here, just imagine you'd never heard the verse before. What would you expect Jesus to say? Behold, someone greater is here, or even someone wiser is here. But that's not what he says. What does he say? Something greater. Now, for me, there are times I read the Bible, and I'm kind of moving along, and it's reading exactly as I would expect, and I'm learning wonderful new things, and then sometimes I read something, and I think, why is it worded that way? 
that doesn't make sense to me. If Jesus is going to say the Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, I expect him to say someone greater or someone wiser than Solomon is here. So you should be coming from greater distances or putting forth greater effort to listen to me because of how much greater I am than Solomon. Instead, he says something greater. And why is that? Because when Christ came, it wasn't just about someone. It was about something. It was about Christ coming with his kingdom. And in the rest of this sermon, and next week's sermon, we're going to focus on this kingdom that Christ brought, or the something that he brought that was greater than what Solomon had, or greater than Solomon's kingdom, and see those ways in which Christ's kingdom is greater than Solomon's kingdom. Now, you know I love Christ, or, well, I love Christ, but what I was going to say was, you know I love types as well. I love types of Christ because I love, I love types of Christ because I love Christ. And individuals served as types of Christ in different ways. Just some uh, of the more obvious or simpler ones. Isaac, we think about Isaac as a type or picture of Christ's sacrifice because he was that son who was submissive to the father when the son was, when the father was going to execute him. When Joseph's rejected by his brothers and then he's later revealed to them, well, your minds go to Christ. You've got Jesus who, I mean, if you want to be real specific, Joseph was rejected by his brethren. When Joseph was rejected by his brethren, it prefigures Jesus being rejected by his brethren. And I don't mean the Gentiles, I mean the Jews who rejected him. And we can be even more specific and talk about his actual brethren, or at least half-brothers, James and Jude, who didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah initially. The authors of those books didn't look at their brother. I mean, they just thought he was super obedient, you know, the, the golden child, but they did not think that he was the son of God early on. And so he was rejected by his brethren, but then Jesus will later be revealed to them as the Messiah, just as Joseph's brothers were able to look on him and see him for who he was at Joseph's, you might say, second coming. Jonah, I can't even really say Jonah serves as a, as a type, we could say a sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, many of these individuals, they generally serve as types of Christ's first coming. Solomon, and the reason I mention those examples is to say this, Solomon primarily serves as a type or shadow of Christ's second coming. So when we look at Solomon, we're not looking for as much fulfillment in Christ's first coming. We're looking at Solomon, to be very candid with you, to see the glory of Christ and his future kingdom. And this brings us to lesson two. Solomon prefigures the glory of Christ's future kingdom. Solomon prefigures the glory of Christ's future kingdom. The splendor and the majesty of Solomon's kingdom, it prefigures the splendor and the majesty of Christ's future kingdom. Why did the Jews reject Jesus in his first coming? Why did they, well, you could say because he rebuked them, because he told them that they were sinners and they didn't want to hear those things. That would be true, but I would say the larger reason that the Jews rejected Christ in his first coming is he didn't look like Solomon. His kingdom at that time did not look like Solomon's kingdom. I said this before, you've got these prophecies in the Old Testament that seem to be incompatible or mutually exclusive. You've got prophecies in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 about a suffering, rejected, betrayed Messiah, and then you've got prophecies about a worshiped, adored, revered, loved 
Messiah. And it's like, how can a Messiah come and be rejected and adored? It's one or the other. How can he come and be worshipped and suffer terribly? And so in the Jews' mind, they're like, well, we'll just embrace these ones. And then all these, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, those are about us and all of our suffering throughout the ages. No, that's not it. We, we can't do that with, with Scripture. We can't do that with prophecy. And so what we see is the fulfillment. We have to see two comings to see the fulfillment of these prophecies. There's, there is no other way. We see these two comings, and we see the Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 in the first, the suffering, the rejection, the betrayal, and then we see the worship, the adoration, the love, the ends of the earth coming to see and to hear him. I mean, when, just follow me on this. When the Queen of Sheba comes from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, that is not about Solomon. That is about the ends of the earth coming, that's prefiguring the ends of the earth, coming to worship Christ. If you don't, if you don't understand that, you're missing what's going on in the Old Testament. You don't understand that the Father wants to reveal his Son to you. So if you read the Old Testament and you see David and Joseph and Solomon and you don't see Jesus, you are making the exact same mistake that the religious leaders made in Jesus' day, which I believe it's John 5.39. They searched the Scriptures diligently, Jesus said, because in them they thought that they had what? Eternal life. But Jesus says, they are testifying of me. So why is this so important to me? Now, obviously... I don't want to make any mistakes as a pastor, but there are a couple I really don't want to make as a pastor, and that's one of them. I don't want to look at the Old Testament and not see Christ. I don't want to lead my church to look at the Old Testament and not see Christ. I don't want to spend weeks talking about Solomon and my church not see who God is primarily trying to exalt. When it looks as though an individual in the Old Testament is being exalted, you've got to understand this. God has no care regarding bringing glory to any man. So anytime someone looks good in the Old Testament, if it's Solomon, if it's Joseph, if it's David, it is still God's way of revealing his son to us. God does not sit back wanting to exalt man. He does not sit back saying, I want Solomon to look good, or David, or Moses. It's not like that at all. God says, or Jesus says, Moses was writing about me. That's who you must see there. And so that's why this is so important. I really can't say this strongly enough. If you were everything about the Old Testament, if you could learn everything that it taught, if you could recount every story, you've been in the church a long time, and the pastor starts preaching on a certain account, and you've already got all your notes in the margins because you're so familiar with that, you could even do a better job preaching that passage than he could. You've got countless verses memorized. If you don't see Christ, then you have failed to allow the Old Testament to be what it's supposed to be, which is, in the language of Galatians, a tutor or teacher that brings your points. What does a tutor do? Brings a student along. You have failed to let the Old Testament be that tutor to bring you to Christ, and I don't want that to happen. This past week, I read this interesting quote, the furniture has not moved. It's just that the light is on now. The furniture is not moved, it's just that the light is on it. In other words, Christ has always been in the Old Testament. He has always been there. But now the light 
or the New Testament provides that illumination so that we can see him. So with that in mind, let's try to see our Savior in 1 Kings. Look with me at verse 1. 1 Kings 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Now, let me ask you this. Did anyone come to test Jesus with hard questions? Yes. How many times did the religious leaders come to test Jesus with hard questions? I mean, the words you're looking at right here, you can substitute a few names, pull this verse right up out of the pages of Scripture, and it perfectly applies to Christ. And this is what I would say. The effortlessness with which Solomon could answer the deep and probing and penetrating questions that the queen of Sheba asked does nothing else except to prefigure the wisdom of Christ and the effortlessness or foreshadow the effortlessness with which Christ could do what? Answer any question that he was asked. Can you tell me a time the religious leaders trapped Jesus? Can you tell me a time that they made him look foolish? Can you tell me a time that they asked him something that he couldn't answer? And all of that being prefigured or foreshadowed right here with the Queen of Sheba. Verse 2, she came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, or some translations say all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And this brings us to one of the ways that Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part one, his knowledge of people. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part one, his knowledge of people. He's greater than Solomon in his knowledge of people. Okay, now this isn't a trick question, but if you look at these verses... Solomon came to know or understand the Queen of Sheba. Know all that was in her heart and mind is what it says. But here's the question. Why or how? Because she revealed it to him. She happened to share with him what was in her heart. And so because of that, he came to know her. How's Jesus greater? He doesn't need anyone to reveal anything about themselves to him. John 2.24 says, Jesus knew all people, and he knew all people without anyone sharing anything with him, telling him anything about themselves. I would say, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives better than we do. We, you shouldn't trust yourself. You should go to the Lord and ask the Lord why you're doing the things you're doing. We should go to the Lord and say, I'm considering doing this, but I'm not sure if my motive is right. Why do we say things like that? Why do we pray and say, Lord, you know whether I should do this or not. I don't know. I don't know if my motive is right. Why do we pray that? Because we know the Lord knows us better than we do. He knows our motives. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, there was nothing hidden from the king. And you can write Hebrews 4.13 which says no creature is hidden from his Christ's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, you imagine for a moment a king who rules and reigns over his subjects, and he knows everything about them, including what? 
all of their thoughts and desires. Everything is exposed to him. Everything is laid bare in the language of Hebrews 4.13. There's nothing that he doesn't know about them. And I'm telling you that because that is what it is going to be like when we are Christ's subjects and he is physically ruling and reigning. We all want people who know us and understand us well. If you think about those that you're closest with, it, my suspicion is it's probably those who know you best and still love you, <laughs> right? Because when I say know you best, what I mean is they know your weaknesses, they know your failures, they know your sins, yet they still love you. The, the, the people who love you but don't know you yet, you don't know whether they really love you because they haven't seen enough. They haven't been exposed to enough. You don't know whether they're your real friends or not. Your real friends are the ones who see all of your failures and all of your sin, and they still want a relationship with you. And the thing is, they still haven't seen all of it. Jesus has seen all of it, and he still what? He still loves you. He still loves me. He still wants a relationship with me. He doesn't just know the things that I've done. He knows the things, the terrible things that I will do, the sins I will commit. He knows everything in my heart and mind, and he still desires a relationship with me. Every time I go to pray, I know the Lord wants to hear from me. Every time I go to read the word, I know he wants to speak to me through it because he wants a relationship with me. We all want people who know and understand us and still want a relationship with us. Hopefully we're blessed to have friends like that, but you only have truly one friend like that who sticks even closer than a brother. I mean, when that verse, when you read that verse and you're like, well, who does this apply to? You might think of some human friends, but there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Her breath was taken away. So it'd be one thing, I suppose, if, if uh, maybe my breath was taken away or someone from some third world country but we're talking about a queen here who is used to extravagance and glamour. And a simpler way to say it is her breath is not taken away. She's probably spent her life seeing this sort of splendor we can only imagine, yet she reaches the kingdom of Solomon and her breath is taken away. And I'm telling you this because Jesus's kingdom will be even greater. I cannot imagine for a moment that despite how great Solomon's kingdom was, that Jesus's kingdom wouldn't be even greater than that. Now, if, if her breath is taken away at what she saw, I cannot imagine what it's going to be like for us when we see that kingdom. And the one thing I want you to notice is the meal that he provides for his servants, and this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part two, the supper he prepares. Greater than Solomon in the supper he prepares. So I don't know what this table looked like that Solomon prepared for the queen and his servants, but I can tell you this, it pales in comparison to the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus has prepared for us. Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this takes place, this is the, the wedding feast when the groom Christ 
is united with his bride, the church, or us. This is what we're all waiting for, to be united with our Savior. And Christ is going to prepare a supper for us, his servants, and it's going to be, I cannot imagine how much more magnificent it's going to be than whatever Solomon prepared at this moment. And I'm sure it was wonderful. I'm sure it was, you know, maybe no, no greater meal has ever been offered in all of human history than what we just read, and it still will not compare to what Christ has in store for us. The book of Revelation, it is basically a record of what John saw, because it's the vision that was given to him. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and John records what he witnessed. And so that's why when you're reading the book of Revelation, I'm not sure how many times it is, but I know it's very frequent, John says, then I saw, then I saw, I saw, I saw, then I saw, then I saw, because he's always just writing down all of these things that he sees. And I'm assuming much of it was pretty unimaginable. But it seems like at the end it picks up a little bit because there are three times when an angel has to tell John, these are the true words of God. Now, when I first read that, I kind of thought it was odd to see an angel telling John these are the true words of God because I thought, well, the whole Bible is the true words of God. Why are we being told that? And then I thought, and all of Revelation, everything John has written in Revelation before this is also the true words of God. So why does an angel have to say these are the true words of God? Well, I confess I'm being speculative, but I believe he had trouble believing it. It's as though the angel had to say, yes, this is true. This is true. This is what God has in store for you. It is that wonderful. It is that great. And I kind of relate to it because there have been a few times where Katie and I were sitting at home and we're talking and we look at each other and we say something along the lines of, sometimes doesn't it seem too good to be true and we both say yes it does it just it does seem too good to be true and we have to be told sometimes these are the true words of god it is this good listen to the verse again the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb so the angel's already speaking and then it says and he said to me these are the true words of god why does it have to say this after the angel's already speaking i think that john was challenged amazed and the angel reminded him yes as magnificent as it is write it down because this is what god has in store for you and what's interesting is it almost seems like that's prefigured with the queen of sheba it almost seems like what she saw was too hard to believe and that's not my opinion look at verse six she said to the king the report was true that i heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And maybe if you pause there, that's going to be the case with us. Maybe we're not going to be able to believe or at least fully understand until what? We see with our own eyes what God has in store for those who love him. And she says, behold, the half of it had not even been told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity, it surpasses the report that I heard. Happier your men, happier your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. How did Solomon's servants seem in their service to him? Very happy, very joyful. It seemed to be a blessed thing to serve King Solomon. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part three, his servant's joy. His servant's joy. 
No doubt that whatever joy or happiness Solomon's servants experienced serving him pales in comparison to the joy and blessedness that we will experience as we serve Christ in his kingdom. There's a saying, do what you love and you'll never have to work another day in your life. And we all strive for that. We, we, I hope many of you have a profession. I, I'm thankful I can say this about myself, that I have a profession I love. I don't want to do anything else. I, I do look forward most, pretty much I can say sincerely every day, I look forward to what I'm doing, studying God's word and pastoring. But with that said, even if you happen to feel like me, this, this quote, do what you love and you'll never have to work another day in your life, is not completely true. Because there are certain days where no matter how much you might love your job, you still dream about doing something else or wonder if it might be better to do something else, right? The only time this quote will ever be true is when we're working for Christ, when we're serving him in his kingdom. Think about this. Work was not a result of the curse or the fall. Or work is not a part of the curse is probably a better way to say it, right? And we know that because what did God do with man before the fall? He had him work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord, and this is before the fall, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So it was God's plan before the fall for man to work. It's just that after the fall, it's going to be a lot different situation. Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So God still wants us working, but in a fallen, cursed world, it isn't going to be the enjoyable experience that it would have been previously. But in the future, the curse is going to be removed, and it's still going to be God's plan for us to work. God wanted us working before the fall, after the fall, during the curse, and then after the curse is lifted, he still wants us working and serving. Revelation 20, the, the whole vision, the whole, sometimes there are these horrific, and I mean horrific by the bad theology in them, uh, images or illustrations communicating what heaven is like, people floating around on clouds doing nothing but, but playing harps. No, we will be busy, but we will enjoy it. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So we will still be working, but we will still be serving. Let me say it like this. If it was a blessed thing to serve King Solomon, how much more blessed is it going to be to serve King Jesus? Look at verse 9, our last verse for this morning. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, I'm convinced you could take this verse, you could lift it up out of here and put it any place else in Scripture and apply it to Jesus. You can read verse 9 word for word, and even though it's about Solomon, it's about Solomon, I believe, secondarily. You can read this and word for word apply it to Christ. I want to focus on the end of the verse where it says that he will execute justice and righteousness 
And this brings us to the last part of lesson three for this morning's sermon. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part four, his execution of justice. Jesus is greater than Solomon in part four, his execution of justice. Now, because it won't involve much work because we're in 1 Kings 10, just turn a few chapters to the left to chapter 3, to 1 Kings 3. So Jesus is greater than Solomon in, in his execution of justice or the way he executes justice and righteousness. So chapter 3, I preached on this chapter a few months ago. I'm not going to spend much time in it. I just want you to notice something from it that's significant. It's split into two sections or two halves. The first half is when, verses 1 through 15, when God gives Solomon wisdom. And then the second half of the chapter, 16 to 18, is when we get to see a demonstration of Solomon's new wisdom. And you remember the account. These two harlots, they bring this child to Solomon. They're both claiming to be the mother, and it seems to be an impossible situation to resolve. Now, here's the thing. The way that Solomon executes justice it prefigures the way in which Christ will execute justice. Or maybe another way to say it is, when Solomon demonstrates his wisdom here, it is prefiguring or it is foreshadowing the greater wisdom of God seen in Jesus. On September 27th, I preached a sermon on the second half of 1 Kings 3, and it was titled, A Glimpse of Jesus' Wisdom, because the account with the two women is prefiguring or foreshadowing Christ's wisdom. Look at verse 28. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, this is interesting. They looked at Solomon, and they saw the wisdom of God. When Jesus was on the earth, when they looked at Jesus, they literally saw the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that Christ became for us the wisdom of God. I mean, to look at Solomon was to see a demonstration of wisdom, but to look at Jesus was to see wisdom incarnate, was to see wisdom coming from heaven to earth in a person. It's like Emmanuel. There was a child in Isaiah 7 named Emmanuel. And they can look at that child and they could say, oh, this child represents God being with us and giving us victory over those enemies that are coming against us. That's the context in Isaiah 7. But when they looked at that child named Emmanuel, did anyone say, oh, that's really God with us? No. When they looked at Jesus, they could say, this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. They can look at Solomon and they can say, we see some wisdom from him that God has given him. But if they want to see the wisdom of God, which is what this verse says, you only see that when you look at Jesus. Solomon resolved these situations that were brought to him. He resolved them quickly, effortlessly, brilliantly, and Jesus will do so in an even greater way. This is all, everything that Solomon did in his execution of justice is just prefiguring the greater execution of justice and righteousness that will be shown through Christ when he reigns. Here's something to consider. How well was Moses able to execute justice and righteousness? For all of his greatness, and I don't like to criticize the man, I love Moses, he was crushed under the weight of executing justice over the nation of people. He could not do it. Christ will do it. He will do it perfectly. Isaiah 11:3. his delight, speaking of Christ, shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The queen of Sheba came. She was able to observe Solomon's wisdom. There were people that looked on that day when Solomon resolved that situation between those two harlots. They saw him executing justice well, but only through Christ will we see justice and righteousness executed perfectly. Now, when I look at Solomon resolve this situation of 1 Kings 3 with these two women, I see something he has in common with Jesus, but I also see something that reveals how much greater Jesus is. So first, is it, am I the only one that thinks it's somewhat odd that Solomon's got these two harlots coming to him? Don't, isn't that, doesn't that kind of stand out? I mean, just to be honest about it, sometimes I read the account, it's like the elephant in the room. Two, two harlots came to him. Wouldn't he have someone below him that could handle this kind of stuff? I mean, he's the king of millions of people. He's got the greatest empire in history, and these two women get to bring this situation to him. Couldn't someone else have resolved this? But here's the thing. When Solomon welcomes harlots, or when harlots approach Solomon, who does Solomon prefigure? He prefigures Jesus. Jesus welcomed anyone that would approach him. There was no one that he sent away. It, it, he, it could be the worst sinners. I mean, it's like sinners and tax collectors, as though tax collectors are somehow worse than other sinners. But, so in the Jewish mind, tax collectors are worse than anything. And Jesus lets tax collectors come. He lets sinners come. He lets harlots come. The very worst come to him. Probably the most famous account, Luke 7, 36 to 40, he lets apparently a very well-known harlot anoint him, which to, how much more welcoming is that? It was a fairly intimate exchange between him and this woman. It was so intimate that the religious leader who had invited him over said what? There is no way that this man is a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So this is what, so in a sense, when Solomon receives these harlots, to me, he's prefiguring or foreshadowing the welcoming nature of Christ. But this is where it breaks down, as every type does. Solomon resolved their situation, but... When they left his presence, were they any different? No, they were not. They were harlots that came to him, and they left him the same. They were unchanged. Nothing had happened with their hearts. They were not forgiven for their sins. They were not regenerate. They were not on their way to the kingdom of God. And that's the major difference from the sinners that Jesus met. He did more than solve people's physical problems. He did more than just resolve matters that were brought to him. In fact, interestingly, sometimes he wouldn't resolve matters that were brought to him. One time a gentleman comes and he says, tell my brother to give me my inheritance. Jesus says, I didn't come to settle these petty disputes. I'm dealing with eternal spiritual matters here. So when people came to Christ, he forgave them, he changed their hearts, he saved them. They left him differently than when they met him. And, how do, and you say, well, how do you know that? How do you know he saved harlots? He said it, Matthew 21, 31. Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God. Jesus brought this kingdom and he starts ushering in the worst of society. He's ushering in the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, 
the lowest. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God that Jesus brought with him. But what specifically is this kingdom? It is the kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, that every believer is part of. So I would be very remiss if I didn't ask you this. Are you part of this kingdom? It is not physically established on the earth at this time, but it is spiritually available through repentance and faith in Christ. It is the kingdom for those who have submitted to Christ and want him to be their king. Have you submitted to Christ? Do you desire him to be your king? Do you live in such a way that if people were to look, although you wouldn't live it perfectly, people would recognize that you are submitted to a king? that you are living for Christ. When people are saved, there are only two kingdoms in this world. Nobody is born a child of God. That's one of the foolish things the world says. Everyone is born a member of the devil's kingdom. There are two kingdoms. That's one of them. And then the other one is the kingdom of God. And when people are saved, they pass from the devil's kingdom to God's kingdom. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son so have you passed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of god and one of the other interesting things about this kingdom one of the most interesting interesting things in my mind and all of the gospels about it is you can actually be close to it without entering it wouldn't you just think that there's the kingdom and people who aren't in it are just equally far no apparently some people can get very close and still not enter mark 12 34 jesus saw a man and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which means he was close, but he hadn't entered. So I would ask, have you gotten close to the kingdom of God, but you haven't entered yet? You haven't repented or you haven't fully surrendered to Christ. If so, then you're not a member of his kingdom. Now, if you have any questions about anything I've discussed, if there's any ways that I could pray for you, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you after service. Father, we thank you for your kingdom that you let us be part of, that you sent from heaven to earth when your son came, when he became a man, when he was born of the Virgin Mary. We thank you for his life, for his death, burial, and resurrection that justifies us by faith, gives us his own, your son's very own righteousness and imputes our unrighteousness to him. So we thank you for the wonderful privilege of being part of that kingdom, and I pray that these verses that we read would allow us or encourage us to long for that kingdom that Christ will rule over when it's physically established on the earth. We look forward to that day, Lord. We hate the injustice. We hate the wickedness that we see around us. It's, things to me seem to be getting worse and worse. We long to see Christ execute perfect justice and righteousness on the earth. So put our hope, our hope there, Lord. Give us faith and anticipation about Christ's kingdom and the wonderful joy and privilege it is to be able to serve him there and experience that for all of eternity. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.